0: Scripture that we're going to study today in the book of Hebrews, the author is once again going to make the argument that Jesus is superior, he's greater than anyone or anything else. And he's going to use an example of the tabernacle, the tent that Moses built in the Old Testament where the presence of God dwelt. And he's going to say that Jesus has a superior ministry than Moses or the Old Testament because Jesus is carrying out his ministry not on a tent on this earth, But actually in heaven itself now the tabernacle that moses built was patterned after everything that god told him to build and really kind of patterned after how it would be in heaven the presence of god but jesus is greater because he's in heaven itself in fact he is the tabernacle of god god in the flesh when he's on this earth so the parallel is an earthly tent as opposed to a heavenly tent if you will And so he's just showing how Jesus is superior, is greater than anything else. Now, just to kind of illustrate that, I've got one of these pop-up tents with me. Now, these things are kind of crazy. It's a little scary, you just kind of toss it up and boom, it pops out. So like this, watch this, there it is. And these things are great because they're so quick. They're portable, all you gotta do is toss them up in the air, they easily fold up into a bag. But look at this tent, I mean, just trying to imagine this having to be your permanent home or imagine this if a really strong storm came up it has a lot of conveniences but it's it's actually very flimsy and lightweight it's not near as good as something that's more permanent and heavy duty and so the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus's ministry is not something that's lightweight or temporary but it is something that's substantial it's something that's permanent it's something that's eternal and so because of that he is greater All right, what you don't see in that video was the first take. That's the second take. So, I didn't realize the rocket speed at which one of those things unfolds itself, right? And the first take, I just held that tent right here and let it go, and that thing popped me in the face and bloodied my nose. (laughs) My nose hurt for about two days after that. So, that next one, I went, there it went. Before we talk about tents, the tents are going to be in our passage of Scripture we're studying today. I want to talk about shadows, because shadows are also in our passage of Scripture today. And uh, both the tent that I showed you, the little temporary one, and a shadow, both, both really kind of make the point that the author is making in our passage today. So this is a picture of a shadow right here on the screen. It's the shadow of a family. And uh, the thing about the shadow of a family is it doesn't really show you any of the substance of the family. You don't see the relationships, you don't see uh, the love, you don't see the struggle, you don't see the substance of what family is just in a shadow. It's just a shadow. That's all that it is. Shadows actually are the product of something that is the real thing, something that is the substance of the thing. Uh, Here's another picture. This looks like kind of a ferocious monster. It's a shadow of something that looks kind of fearsome. But uh, you look at that and go, wow, that looks mean, that might could eat me. But then you look at the next picture and you realize, ah, the shadow is nothing. There's no substance to that. It's, it's, It's just somebody with hands making a little hand puppet kind of type of thing. So that's the thing about shadows, they really don't have any substance. The shadow of a dog cannot bite you, the shadow of a burglar cannot steal from you, the shadow of a truck or a car cannot hit you and cause damage, they're just shadows. And so what really matters is the substance. And that's what we're going to talk about today in our passage of Scripture. So if you take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8, we are going to study today the first six verses. Of Hebrews eight, and just a reminder before we read that what we're doing in the book of Hebrews, really all of the book of Hebrews up to this point, but particularly in these last few chapters, we're we're kind of on a on a staircase here. We're, We're we're on a progression. We're on a gradation of the author of Hebrews making the argument of the superiority of Jesus, and and kind of with each passage, there's kind of a step. There he goes a little higher in that. In fact, you can go all the way back to chapter one. Jesus is greater than the angels, and then he's greater than Moses, and then he's greater than Abraham and with Melchizedek. And then you get to this idea of the high priest, and Jesus is greater than all these priests in the Old Testament, and uh, he's greater than the high priest on Earth. And now you come to chapter eight, and it's like you take another one of these steps up. And where the author of Hebrews is going to put Jesus is right here in heaven itself. And so what makes Jesus greater than anyone else or anything else or any priest or any ideology doesn't matter. One of the things that makes him greater is the fact that he's there in heaven itself. All the rest of this was taking place on earth, but Jesus is uniquely qualified to carry out this work and to do it for us in heaven. And so this is what he says then in chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So let's look at this passage of Scripture kind of from two major headings, the substance of who Jesus is, what what qualifies Jesus for him to have these things said about him and for him to be in heaven seated at the right hand of God the Father, and then also just the superiority of his ministry, what he is doing as our high priest is far, far superior than what any priest on this earth or in the Old Testament ever did for us. So, let's talk about the substance of who Jesus is and what qualifies Him to have these things said of Him. Now, there's an important word right here in the middle of verse 1. He says, we have such a high priest. What does the such refer to? Right? He is such a person. He is that kind of person. He is that kind of priest. What does the such refer to? Well, the such refers back to the very last phrase of chapter 7. Chapter 7 verse 28, here is God who appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So the substance of Jesus, what qualifies him to have these things said of him, what qualifies him to be our high priest is he's perfect. Now. Before I ever preached a a, a single sermon in Hebrews, I read through this letter many times. I read through a lot of the commentaries, did all this kind of stuff, did a lot of study before we ever did one sermon. And you know, as I made notes, one of the the most unique and interesting things to me about the book of Hebrews is the author's emphasis on Jesus being made perfect. Now, up to this point, we get to chapter 8, this is now the third time... That the author says Jesus has been made perfect. Now, when you hear that phrase, that ought to cause you a little bit of concern. So, wait a minute, he's been made perfect as in he was imperfect before? In fact, one of, those, one of those references, one of those three that I refer to is on the screen right here in chapter 5. Now, look what he says. You almost have a little bit of a double whammy of heartburn in this one. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. Stop. He learned obedience, meaning that he was not obedient before? No, that's that's not what he's saying. Uh, Through what he suffered, and then being made perfect. Stop. Being made perfect, does that mean that he was not perfect before? No, that's not what he's saying either made perfect, he became, the, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. Now look at that, look at that verse right there. What's the connections with Him and obedience and perfection? What is it? The suffering and being the source of salvation. What's at stake right here, what, what, what's being referred to here is the incarnation of Jesus. Okay, was there ever a time when Jesus was not perfect? Of course not. Uh, Jesus has no beginning. He has no end because he is God. And by the way, let me just say very clearly up front before we kind of do some God the Father, God the Son kind of talk, uh, many times, especially in, us, in, in our Baptist circles, we kind of work in a little functional subordination that like we kind of in our mind think the Father is the top notch, then it's the Son, then it's the Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit are all absolutely equal members of the Trinity. There is no subordination of one to the other. There is not an inferiority of one to the other. Father, Son, Spirit are all perfectly equal. But here's Jesus, right? And so, He comes to the earth in the incarnation through His suffering, and now in coming to the earth in the form of flesh and blood becomes the source of our salvation. So, has Jesus always been perfect? Yes. He's always been perfect. He is perfect right now. He will always be perfect. So, what in the world is the author getting at when he says that Jesus has been made perfect and that he uh, is learning this obedience thing? Okay, so, so here's basically what's happening. What's happening is, here's Jesus who has always existed. He has no beginning. But Jesus, at some point now in history, comes to the earth And takes on flesh and blood in the incarnation. So, in this this first Christmas, right, Jesus has now done something that He has not done heretofore, taken on flesh and blood. Now, if Jesus does not take on flesh and blood, there is no way He can be the source of our salvation. Hebrews is going to tell us here in just a couple of chapters, if there is no shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. What does he say in this passage we just studied? Every priest that comes into the presence of God, every priest that goes into the holy place better be they have to be carrying a sacrifice. So here is Jesus, and when Jesus comes, he is not carrying a sacrifice because he is the sacrifice. And so he takes on flesh and blood, and he is born of a virgin, and he lives a perfect life, and he gives his life on the cross. He sheds his blood, he gives his life as a payment to God for our sin, Through our faith in Jesus, His perfect righteousness becomes our own. It comes into our spiritual account, if you will. And perfect Jesus, giving a perfect sacrifice, can satisfy the perfect demands of God's righteousness for us to be right with Him and to be saved. None of that happens if He doesn't take on flesh and blood. So, in English, maybe perfect isn't quite the best understanding of this for us, maybe the better word is completed. So Jesus has always been perfect, right? He he, he didn't overcome some imperfection. He's always been perfect. But by taking on flesh and blood, what Jesus has done is He has completed, He has perfected God's plan of sending Him to this earth to be our Savior. Now, you see then how that sets him above all the rest of the priests. Okay, first of all, the priests in the Old Testament, uh, were they perfect? Far from it. You read the Old Testament? There's some scoundrels in there. And uh, all, of the, all of the sacrifices that they bring, is just, as we've said before, is just kicking the can down the road. All of this is just pointing to an ultimate reality. All of this is a shadow. All of this is a temporary kind of thing. The sacrifice is being killed in the Old Testament until we come to Jesus who perfectly gives the sacrifice. So being perfected, being completed, so taking on this flesh and blood, here's what he does. He can now look at us and say, hey, I don't know how you feel. I've suffered that temptation. I've suffered that trial. I've suffered that pain. But he goes one step more than the priests. See, the the priests of the Old Testament, they could do that. If you went to the priest in the Old Testament and said, hey, hey, priest, I'm kind of going through the struggle, the priest would look at you and say, I really sympathize with that. Here's the thing. The priest could only sympathize. They could not transcend your problem, your sin. All they can do is sympathize with it, right? Oh, hey, you know, I'm sorry you're going through that thing. Let me kill a bull. Hey, I'm sorry, that thing. Let, let me kill a goat. But Jesus, taking on flesh and blood, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He sympathizes with our trials and our struggles, but now he transcends it. He is the solution. These guys didn't have the solution. All the animals are killing is just kicking a can down the road, a shadow of the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. And so he comes and gives us the solution. All right, so let, let's, just, let's just try to think of that in some ways we can really understand it. Let's say you break your arm. I mean, bad. You break your arm, you got a compound fracture. I'm sorry this is gross right before lunch, but let's say I mean, you, you, your arm just looks like a U, all right? You've clearly broken your arm. And you, ah, you call your, your friend comes over. What happened? What happened? I broke my arm. And your friend goes, wow. I bet that hurts. And What if your friend, looking at your arm, reaches his hands out there to try to fix your arm? What are you going to do? Wait, uh! The only thing your friend can do is say, I bet that hurts, but you want your arm fixed? You got to go see the doctor. Got a problem at the store? The cashier can only do so much. The, the, the cashier can sympathize with your problem. You want your problem fixed at the store, you got to see the manager or the owner of the store. Light switch at home doesn't work. Click, 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 click. Light's not coming on. You can call your buddy over and your buddy's going to look at that light switch and go, yeah. Looks like it's probably a 110, 111 kind of wire in there. You want that light to come on? You're going to have to call the electrician. That's what we're doing right here. Now, 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 now think of this in in just a little bit of a different way. He becomes perfect. He is made perfect. Something happens to him that had not happened before when he takes on flesh and blood. Think of it like this. When Jesus leaves heaven on that first Christmas morning, he comes to earth, We can say a lot of different things about him right here. When he leaves heaven that first Christmas morning, he leaves heaven as the son of God. He takes on flesh and blood. He lives his life perfectly. He gives his life as a sacrifice on the cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends back to heaven. Now watch. When he came down from heaven, he came down as the son of God. And there is a sense now in which we can say as he ascends he is also now the son of man. When he came down from heaven, he was a king. And then he does all this thing on the earth. And now as he goes back, he's also our high priest, having made the sacrifice for our sin. He came down as the Lord, does this thing on the earth. And now he ascends, what? Ministering for us. He came down as the sovereign. He goes up as the savior. We could go. But it is this incarnation that Jesus comes and takes this on. And let me tell you, this gives us some comfort because I, I, I think there's something so interesting here. Look at this. Look right at the end of verse 1. Notice the phrase, the word that he uses. He says he's seated at the right hand of the throne of. And you would think he would say, the Father or God. But what does he say? He is seated at the right-hand throne of majesty in heaven. Now, this goes right with what he's been talking about, Melchizedek. So what he's referring to is the royalty of Jesus. So the context here is Jesus is our priest. He's a high priest, but he's not just any priest. He's, He's perfect. He's better than these other Old Testament priests, but he's in the priesthood in the line of Melchizedek. So remember, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Coming from Abraham, the author said earlier, coming from the genealogy of Abraham is Aaron, and from Aaron come all of these priests. But here comes Melchizedek, has this this kind of strange meeting with Abraham after his great military victory, and Abraham submits himself to Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews says, the one that gives the blessing is superior to the one that receives it. And Abraham receives the blessing. And then in turn, he pays a tithe to Melchizedek. Melchizedek has no stated genealogy. The whole thing here is these guys that are priests in the Old Testament, the only reason they are a priest is because of their genealogy. They're not qualified. They're just blood descendant from Aaron. And so here is Jesus so different from that. He's in the line of Melchizedek, right? This this kind of supernatural coming to the earth, if you will, and, 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 and not dependent on the genealogy or the law to be the priest. But remember the thing about Melchizedek is what? He's not just the priest, but he's the king. There is no other, not one single person in the Old Testament where it says of that person that they are both the priest and the king. That didn't happen in Judaism. It didn't happen in the Jewish nation because of the balance and separation of powers. But Melchizedek holds both offices, priest and king. And so here is Jesus, our high priest, a priest such as this, perfect. And what? He's also seated at the majesty. That means he's the king. Now here's where this is really comforting for us, y'all. Go back and read the Old Testament. The king was a pretty big deal in terms of the hope and the blessing and the fortune of the nation. And the kings would come and go. They would all have the succession. So you go back to the very first one, and you have Saul, and then you have David, and then you have Solomon. And then the empire splits, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And then a lot of the rest of the Old Testament is just the succession of kings. And you would have a good king, and then you'd have a lousy king. I mean, his very own son would be, so, this, good, this good king would fear the Lord, uh, uh, follow the word, tear down the, uh, the places of idolatry. But then his son would be a lousy king and ignore the Lord and put up the idolatry. And, and you have a lousy one and another lousy one. And you might have a good one. And you have a lousy one and a lousy one. And kind of the hopes and fears of the nation were kind of pinned in the character of the king. So there's two massive things at stake right here, right in this text. Here we are as Christians, and we have submitted ourselves to a king. And the great news for us in this is that first of all, we have a king that is eternal. He's not going anywhere. There will be no one that succeeds him. Other kings, there's always a successor. Why? Because they're gonna die. Jesus never dies. Jesus will always be the king. He's not going to resign. You're not going to impeach him. He won't quit because he's bored. And when you came to Christ and gave your life to follow him in faith, you did so not having to worry about, wow, I wonder who Jesus's successor will be. I wonder if we'll get a good king. And by the way, you can relate to this a little more than maybe you think are you going to have a good semester next, next semester? I don't know. Am I going to have a good teacher? You go into a good school? I don't know. Is the principal good? Is that new church going to be a good church? I don't know. Is the pastor good? you going to like that new job? I don't know. Will the boss be good? Is our mayor good? Is our senator good? Is our governor good? Is our president good? You see how a lot of the times it ebbs and flows with the character of the leader? So the first thing is, you have one leader forever. And the other thing is, not only do you have the one leader, he's perfect. It would be one thing if you were stuck with a bad boss for eternity. But we are all stuck, if you will, with a perfect boss who loves us indescribably. And so, man, that is such good news right here. Now, look at this next thing. He's perfect, but we also see in this passage the power, because look what he says. He's in heaven, and what's he doing in heaven? He is seated at the right hand. Now, what's going on here is what he has been to me alluding to kind of back and forth a little for the last several passages, this whole idea that Jesus not only has the authority, but he has the power. Remember the illustration I used with you, you got a super busy intersection with all these hundreds of cars zooming through it, and and, and they send a single solitary police officer out there all by himself to try to stop the cars, I mean they don't even see him. Now he has the authority, he's a duly licensed member of law enforcement, he has the authority but he doesn't have the power. You could also drop a giant boulder into this intersection, bang, and a big boulder would stop the cars, it has the power but it doesn't have the authority. It doesn't have a badge. I mean, it's a rock. Jesus is so unique in that he is qualified. He has the authority. He's perfect. But he also has the power. And where do you see the power? It's in the word seated. So remember, this is important because the author of Hebrews is already alluded, is going to allude to this in chapter 10. He says, day after day, every priest, I'm the priest in the Old Testament, they stand and perform their religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which he can never take away sins. He's kicking the can down the road. But notice what he's referring to here. In the temple in the Old Testament, there are no chairs. The pre, it's, a, it's a symbolic thing. The priests never sit down. You know why? Because their job is never finished because the sacrifice of a a bull or a goat or a lamb is not going to atone for the sin of a human being. The sacrifices of animals are just the shadows. They're the tents. They're the copy. They're just kicking the can down the road. And so their work is never done. There's always a next one. There's always a next one. There's always a next one. Do you all remember when I drove the scooter on the stage up here? I know you all remember that with vivid clarity. The thing that bothers me is you don't remember why. Did your pastor drive a scooter on the stage? Yes, he did. Why did he do that? No clue. You remember the point? What was the point? The point is you can always find something better. Remember I started off with my little kid's push scooter, right? And then I graduated up to a more grown-up, still a push scooter. And then I graduated to an electric scooter, y'all remember that? And my whole point was I can go get on Amazon this afternoon, I can even buy one better than that one. There's always something better that's what these Old Testament priests are doing. That's why they don't ever sit down. They're always on the move. They always got to be killing animals because they're kicking the can down the road until you come to Jesus' sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice is terminal. That means you get to the end of the line. You cannot look at Jesus' sacrifice and then say, oh, we need another one. And that's why we don't kill animals in church today, by the way. I've had that question asked to me (laughs) before, several times actually. Hey, why don't we kill animals in church? I'm like, the carpet? I mean, that, you know. Uh, No, here's the theological reason. You don't need to. You know, you ever wonder that? Why does Jesus not come back to the earth and die again? Or here's another, why don't we put some plastic down here and kill some animals in here? Because, you know, like a vaccine or something, we need a booster shot. Right, we've sinned an awful lot in 2,000 years since Jesus died. We need a kind of little bit of a booster here for, to say, no, you don't need any of that. Why? Because his sacrifice was perfect. You don't have to, you can't look beyond. You, you, you get to stop kicking the can when you hit perfection. And so that's why Jesus is seated, because he's done. There, there, is, there is no more cross waiting for Jesus. He's already done it. It's already completed. And so when he is seated, see how he's different than the priests? Oh, they're always moving around, kicking the can, kicking the can, kicking the can. But Jesus comes and brings his sacrifice, and then he gets to sit down. It's a symbol. It's a picture of rest. I'm done. It's finished. You see it? Now, you want something that's going to encourage you? What's this. Look at these two verses right here. Whoops. Look at these. What's what Paul does with the same thought? Look what he does right here in Ephesians. He says, God raises us up with Christ. He raised us up with Christ and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And you know what's fascinating to me about that? Look at that. Past tense. Not will seat you. No, this is such a done deal. He has done it. It's, it's, It's a done deal. Put it in the bank. So here's Jesus, finished his work on the cross, perfect sacrifice on our behalf, and all of us who follow him in faith, we one day will be seated with him there in heaven, our place is there in heaven, because of his perfect work. And you see the security of this then? Look at what Jesus said. I shall lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And that's incredibly encouraging, and it gives a lot of security and confidence. My place in heaven is secure because he has secured it. See? And you want something else that's encouraging? Don't read seated and think inactivity. We might read seated and think that Jesus is in heaven like this waiting on second coming. Let me know, Father, when it's time. Or this, seated, no, 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 not in activity. What have we already learned in Hebrews? He is making intercession for us. Right now, Jesus is talking to God the Father about you. He is serving you right now. Most people in this room won't even know who... These, you won't know who Chuck Colson is in the foreground. Sadly, some of you won't even know that that's Richard Nixon, who was the president of the United States at one time. <laughs> Chuck Colson was one of Nixon's aides, ended up being kind of the guinea pig in Watergate, went to jail for it. And jail comes to faith in Christ. Writes a number of great books. And one of the books that Colson wrote, he tells a story about sitting in the Oval Office with Nixon, and Nixon's looking out the window, kind of, doing some deep thinking. And Nixon's looking out the window, and he says, you know, Chuck, it occurs to me that people want their leaders to be a little better than they are, to be greater than they are. And then Colson said he used this word, he says, people want their leaders to have a certain aloofness from the people kind of ivory tower idea. And Colson writing his book says, you know, Jesus is the dead opposite of that. Now you think about it. Does it get any greater and any more powerful than Jesus? Seated at the right hand of the Father? I mean let's let's just be let's just be honest and real for a minute. You know, Jesus made everything that exists with the word. If he wanted to, he could destroy everything with the Word. That's power. And you think, um, a person who's perfect and a person with this authority, a person who is God, a person who can create or destroy the world with a Word, that person, and what is that person doing with all that power and authority? He is serving you. That's mind-blowing. What was the last thing Jesus did for the disciples before he went to the cross? What was it? He washed their feet. How amazing is that? Next time you're struggling, next time you're going through a pretty rough time, I want you to know and remember you have an eternal priest enthroned in emerald above a crystal sea with millions of the heavenly host praising him. And what is that individual doing? He is serving you. That's pretty amazing. That's the picture we get of our great high priest. Now, let's look at this last thing. Let's talk about his ministry. Let's look at the rest of this. So in verse 2, look at it. Jesus is a minister in the holy places. He's in heaven in the true tent that wasn't built by a man, but was set up by the Lord himself. Now, what's he talking about? He, he's obviously talking about uh, the tabernacle. By the way, it's interesting for, the, for these, these Jewish Christians, these Hebrews right here, you know, when you read early Jewish writings, one of the criticisms they have about Christianity is Christianity can't be true, it can't be real, because Christianity doesn't have a priest. Yeah, it does. Jesus is just not a human priest or earthly priest. It's the Son of God. So, you see what he says here in this passage of Scripture. So, Moses builds this tent. And it's a man-made tent, and it's a temporary thing, and he says it's a pattern. So when Moses is up on the mountain getting all the instructions from God, one of the things he got up there was how to build the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is this rectangular structure made out of curtains. And it's got all the things, the the, the furniture in it for the sacrifice and the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and all that in there. Now, don't don't mistake this as a physical representation. When we go to heaven one day, heaven is not going to be in a long rectangle with curtains around it. But all the symbolic spiritual stuff is in there about the sacrificial system. So all of this, you'll see, is a shadow. All of this is a type. It's a temporary tent. And all of this is pointing to the final, to the real, to the ultimate presence of God in heaven. And you see the difference he's making, just like my video. See the difference that he's making? Now watch this. Don't read this stuff in the Old Testament and go, I don't need that, or oh, that's false. That, that, the tabernacle was false. No, it's not false. It's true. It's good. It just wasn't ultimate. It, it, it's pointing to the final, it's pointing to the real thing. All these sacrifices pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus. What is the tabernacle doing? It's pointing to heaven where we will be in the presence of God. So I want you to think about this. I just brought this from my office. So pull this off my bookshelf football helmet. This is a cool helmet, I mean, it's good. Right, I wish you could see the detail from where you are. It's got incredible detail. It's got the logo. It's got the. It's got the, the 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 the, the straps. The the hook. The buttons. It's got the the brand name on it. The American flag. It, it's got. It's got even got the padding in here. It's got the chin strap. I mean, this is a pretty good exact replica. This is a cool deal. But the problem is, I ain't gonna try to wear this on a football game. It's good, but uh, it's not that good. What does a little helmet like this do? Well, it points us to the real thing, doesn't it? Now, I'd wear this and go play football. Well, not at my age anymore, I wouldn't. This is what he's talking about. This is the tabernacle, this is the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. All of that is pointing to the real thing. And this is what we have to remember in this passage. And I go back to this whole idea of seated. This this is it. This is the final thing. You're not going to find anyone better. You're not going to find anything better. It's all finished, it's all done. Do you know? It was really not until the 1800s that we really, truly, truly understood the the form, if you will, of the Greek that the New Testament was written in. In fact, all the way up until the 19th century, a lot of scholars thought that the Greek of the New Testament was written in some kind of a sacred, mysterious, almost kind of supernatural kind of dialect because the Greek of the New Testament is not like modern-day Greek. It's not classical. It's not Attic Greek. It's, it's, it's what we call Koine Greek. And we didn't fully understand that until Dysman and son of his gang finds this, this set of papyri in, in Egypt in the 1800s. And what they had uncovered in this papyri is it's, it's a whole bunch of uh, marketplace documents. And they realized, oh, wow, goodness, the Greek of the New Testament's Koine Greek. The Greek of the New Testament is like marketplace. It's like the everyday working man's Greek. It was written like that so everybody could understand it. So if you read Diceman's work upon this, you know, when he says one of the things, one of the words that they kept finding in all these uh, marketplace kind of legal documents was this word in Greek, To tetelestai. tetelestai translated in English would mean uh, it is complete or it is finished. And so, Dyson would say, well, you, know, you, you find this document, like they're selling property, and the buyer's signature, and the seller's signature, and then somebody had kind of written on there, "Die, finished, done, completed, put it in the bank. Uh, here's an agreement about trade, and here's the guy buying, and here's the guy selling, "Die, done, signed and sealed and delivered, To us Tetelestai. And so, you get to John's gospel, and when Jesus is hanging on the cross, just before he gives up his spirit, what does Jesus say? It is finished, and the Greek word is tetelestai, completed, finished, done. And so, friends, you read this passage of Scripture, and it gives us tremendous encouragement a tremendous confidence that Jesus has finished, He has done, He has completed everything that is required for us to do to be saved. And so here he is. He's finished. He's completed it. Listen to me. I keep using this phrase, kick the can. There is a sense in which the entire Old Testament is a document waiting to be signed. Here's a sacrifice. We'll kill this bull. There's a sentence. We'll kill this lamb. There's a sentence. We're going to keep adding and adding and adding. We're moving and we're moving and we're moving. But all these sacrifices and this tabernacle and this temple, all this stuff, it's all just pointing until this thing would finally be consummated and finally be realized and finally be finalized. And so when Jesus comes to the earth, takes on flesh and blood, dies on the cross, rises from the dead, you know what he does? He signs to Telestai on that document. It is finished. We can rest in that. We can rest in that. Father, I want to pray that you would fill us today with a deep gratitude of who Jesus is. Would you help us understand, Lord, his perfection and his power? Would you help us to understand, Lord, that no, no thing, no person, no ideology can ever save us from our sin, save us from hell, and really lead us to flourishing. Father, other people, other things, other ideologies, they promise a lot they never can deliver because they're not qualified and they don't have the power. Would you help us to realize today, Lord, there are plenty of things out there that can sympathize with our situation in life, but none of them can transcend the problem of our sin. And so I pray today, Father, for anyone listening to me that they would come in faith to follow you, Jesus. Speak to their heart. I pray for anyone today, Lord struggling, in difficult time, that they would realize their leader, their king, is eternal and perfect and all-powerful. And Lord, amazingly, you want to serve us and love us And so, Lord, we come with humility and gratitude to you today. Help us to receive you, to follow you, to believe in you, regardless of the price or the cost. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.